are in, I believe, part seven of our series called Searching for Answers. We've taken these questions that our church family has submitted, and we're diving into them, breaking into them, and, and, and finding out what does the Bible have to say about these things. And so as a way of refresher, we have three principles that we're basing this series on. That This is how we are trying to answer these questions. Number one, when the Word of God speaks clearly, we're going to speak clearly. We're not going to defend the Word of God. We're not going to apologize for the Word of God. We're going to present, here's what the Bible says. Uh, secondly, when the Bible gives us a principle, we'll seek to apply that principle. In other words, not everything in our modern life, not everything in our modern questions showed up at exactly that way in the Bible. A lot of things are different than they were 2,000 years ago. But we can look for principles, underlying truths uh, that we can apply to modern situations. And lastly, when the Bible's silent, and doesn't happen often, but sometimes it doesn't say much on a topic, um, I'll give you my opinion. But I'll tell you, hey, this is just my opinion. You can take it or leave it. Today we're going to be answering questions about church. Questions about what I would call Big C Church, which is the universal church, and Little C Church, which is the local church, our church body, city church. So we're going to start with some big C questions, come down to some little C questions, and then close with another big C question. So question number one, so I've been told in the original Bible there were more than 66 books. How come today's Bibles have just 66 books? Awesome question for us to look at today. I don't know if you've ever considered how did these things get in the Bible? Why do we choose? Why do we select these specific texts and say, hey, this is the word of God, and say all these other texts out there are not the word of God? Here at City Church, we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, that God spoke to humans who penned it, who wrote it down, and they wrote down exactly what God would have them to say. He used their personalities. He used their experiences. He used their viewpoints, but he used it to, to have them write down for us, thousands of years later, exactly what, what he would want to say to us. So we believe it's a big deal. We believe scripture is a big deal. We believe outside of those 66 books, there is nothing written, there is nothing spoken that lives up to the same standard of scripture. In other words, if I get up here and say anything and I'm like, hey, God said this, we believe that God still speaks through people. But we, we filter anything that God says through a person through the word of God. If it doesn't match up with the word of God, then it's not God speaking through that person. Uh, so, so we believe very strongly in the word of God. So, so how do we select these 66? Did they're used to be more? Well, the Bible that we use, which is widely known as the Protestant Bible, has 66 books. The Catholic Bible, which is probably what this question is being based on, um, actually has more. It has 73 books in it. The reason why these Bibles are different is they use different standards of what is the word of God. Uh, the Hebrew Bible, which is known as the Tanakh. The Tanakh is basically the collection of the Old Testament, and it's 24 books, uh, 24 books in the Tanakh. The, the Protestant Old Testament that we use breaks those 24 books into 39 books. Uh, so in other words, for example, First and Second Samuel. In the original Hebrew, that's one book. Uh, but it's been broken down for us to make it a little easier to navigate, to, to make it easier to find things. Um, there are other examples that are very similar where basically one book was taken, took and broken into one, two, sometimes even more. Uh, so that's how we have 39. It's the exact same words, the exact same text, uh, obviously translated into different languages, ours into English uh, as the Hebrew Bible, but it's based on those 24 books. Uh, the Catholic Bible 
also embraces all 24 of the books of the Hebrew Bible, also breaks them into 39, just like ours does. But the Catholic Bible also embraces seven other books. Um, These books are the books of Tobit, Judith, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, also known as Sirach, uh, Baruch, including the letters of Jeremiah, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and also has some additions to the books of Daniel and Esther. At the time of the Reformation, so back in the, the 1500s, when uh, the, this massive movement began to, to reform the church, where there was recognitions that, hey, basically it was only the Catholic Church in Western Europe up to this point in time, and they started to realize, hey, there's a lot of flaws here. There's a lot of things that, that are off. So Martin Luther, who you may be familiar with, actually begins this process of, of saying, hey, these things aren't right. This isn't what the Bible teaches. We need to get back to the Bible. So this Reformation starts in about 1491 and extends through uh, the 16th century. Uh, during the time of the Reformation, the fathers of the church at that point in time basically sat down and reexamined, okay, what is the word of God? They recognized the Catholic Bible had these 46 books of the Old Testament, um, and they said, you know what, we think that these seven don't belong because they're not in the original Hebrew Bible. The, the Jews who our faith is founded upon, they don't receive these as divinely inspired. They don't recognize these. They're, they're works of history. They're valuable, but they don't see them as the word of God. And so the Protestant fathers at that point in time decided, you know what, we're going to separate these out and not include them today. Now, there are a lot of Protestant churches who use those seven books and say, hey, there's value in them. There's history here. There's information here. Um, I don't think that those books are of Satan. I don't think they're, man, they need to be burned and they need to be trashed. Uh, In my best understanding, they don't live up to the standard of Scripture. I think that the the 66 books is the correct number. Um, And I think, obviously, if we're going to err, I'd rather err on the side of not enough rather than too much. Uh, If there's going to be a leaning one direction or the other, that's the way I would definitely lean. Um, But what I want to do today is take this question and help you understand how did stuff gets selected at the beginning. How do we get what we call the canon? The canon is, is the set of books that have been ascribed as inspired by God. How do we select the canon? So what happened is uh, there were a number of councils in the very early church where, where different church leaders and elders would gather together and, and debate, argue stuff out. Because in the beginning, believe it or not, it's kind of weird to think about, but they didn't have the Bible, Right? Uh, the, the New Testament church, they had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. So John writes a letter, and it goes to these churches, and they have it. And Mark writes a gospel, and it goes to these churches, and they have it. And other writers write other things. And so different churches had access to different pieces of Scripture. And somebody had to get together and synthesize all that, put it all together, decide this is good, this is great, this belongs, this doesn't belong. Uh, so in the original councils and, and what we have is right now the divinely inspired canon of scripture, which I believe in with all my heart, the 66 books that are selected, that decision was made in 367. So for about 100, excuse me, about 250 years, there were discussions about this. There was filtering. There was, hey, we think this is, we think this isn't. But they had three standards, and this is what I want to share with you. Three standards of how do we determine if something is the word of God. The first standard was orthodoxy. Um, in other words, orthodoxy means it, it lines up with other scripture. So if there was a letter from Thomas, 
uh, or, or for example, or from Judas, or whoever, and there was something in that letter that contradicted what we knew, hey, this is what really happened, this is what the Bible says, this is what God has spoken, then those things were rejected. So it had to live up to the standard of orthodoxy. That was the first standard. The second standard is the standard of universality. This was a really big one. Because of the way that it was written, and certain letters were sent to this part of the world, and other letters were sent to this part of the world, there started to rise up different churches with different camps. They weren't denominations, but you could almost see them that way, because these guys, we follow John. We have John's letters, and we're going to believe John's letters, and we follow Peter. We have Peter's letters, and we're going to build our church on Peter's letters. And so the, the standard of universality said, no matter what part of the Christian world that you're in, if you go to this part of the Christian world, they're going to embrace this letter and say, you know what, this is from God. They're going to embrace this and say, this is the word of God. So it wasn't saying, we're going to choose these guys' opinion over these guys' opinion. It was, hey, we got to all agree. If any region doesn't accept this, then we're not embracing it. We're all going to be on the same page. We're going to universally accept these as scripture and embrace them. And so these were all universally accepted. And the third standard is the standard of apostleship. Uh, these letters had to be written, these books had to be written by someone who had been chosen as an apostle, recognized as an apostle, either one of Jesus' disciples or who had been a, a founding father of the church. Um, the one exception to this, of course, is the book of Hebrews, because nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Uh, but despite the fact that nobody knows who wrote it, the early church recognized that it lived up to the exception, uh, to, the, to the standard of orthodoxy and the standard of universality, um, and they believed, you know what, this was, may not have been written by an apostle, but it was written by someone very close to one of the apostles, prayed it through, and embraced it. Ironically enough, Hebrews is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, the most controversial probably of them all. So that's how we decided on our 66 books. That's how we landed there. 39 books of the Old Testament from the, the Hebrew Bible, 27 books of the New Testament that were recognized as having orthodoxy, universality, and apostleship. Second question this morning. Uh, since the first Bible was not written in English, how do we know for sure that the Bible translations we read today are accurate? Really, really good question. So the first Bible wasn't written in English. Anybody like, whoa, I didn't know that, right? And we all, hopefully we got that part down. Uh, the first Bible was not written in English. In fact, the first Bible wasn't even a Bible. It was bits and pieces of different books and genres that were synthesized together. So how do we know that it's accurate? Well, let me give you a couple answers to this. Uh, number one is, if you look in our English translations, there's a history now uh, that goes back uh, about 700 years that the Bible has been translated into the English language. Uh, in that history, there have been a lot of people, a lot of scholars who have gone and, and made translations. So here's how Bible translations started. Bible translations originally started into what we would call vernacular, into the words of the people, the language of the people. Uh, and it was started, and it was coming from what we call usually the Septuagint translation. The Septuagint was the Greek. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're not familiar, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew primarily. The New Testament was written in Greek primarily. Little bits and pieces of the Old Testament and the New Testament were written in Aramaic, which is a sister language of Hebrew. Uh, so those are the three languages of biblical translation, the three languages of the, of the biblical books. Uh, so people came and said, we're going to take this Greek Bible and translate it into German. 
We're going to translate it into French. We're going to translate it into English. We're going to translate it into Mandarin. We're going to translate it into Japanese. Whatever language they were putting it into, they were, they were bringing it primarily from the Greek. What this gave was fairly accurate New Testament translations, but they got less and less accurate in the Old Testament. And here's why. If you've ever made copies of a document, you have a master. You keep the master of that document if you're going to make copies again. Because if you don't, if you make a copy of the copy, and then a copy of the copy of the copy, eventually you start to lose information, right? You start to lose clarity. So when you're dealing with translation, uh, if we're going to go to Peru on a mission trip, um, I'm going to take Mercedes as my translator because she speaks Spanish and she speaks English, right? So we're going to go to somebody who can do that. What we wouldn't do is say, hey, Carrie, you speak German, which I don't know, you probably don't, but we'll just use you as an example, right? So we were going to take you as a translator. You speak German. I'm going to tell you this. And then this guy over here, he speaks German and Spanish. So you're going to say it to him in German, and then he's going to tell it to the people in Spanish. That wouldn't make any sense, right? You wouldn't add a step to the process. So the newer translations cut that out. What's happened is uh, we, we discovered a bunch of scrolls called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us access to much older manuscripts than we had ever had before. And it gave us really good manuscripts, especially in the Hebrew, which allowed us to now go back, instead of having to translate from other people who translated the Bible into their language, we can go directly to the Hebrew and translate it into English. So let's talk modern American translations, right? King James. We got a lot of people who love the King James, live by the King James, only study the King James, right? We have churches in DeSoto County that will tell you the King James Bible is the only Bible, and if you read any other Bible, you are distorting and perverting the Word of God. Uh, that's, that's real. Uh, people believe that. So here's why we don't so much use the King James. We don't believe the King James is of Satan or that it's demonic or anything, um, what we recognize is the modern translations have access to a lot better manuscripts than the King James did. We think they did the best they could with what they had. Uh, but it is not based on the best information. It was based on the Septuagint as well as the Vulgate. It was actually not even translated from Greek. It was translated from Latin, which is the Vulgate. So everything was translated from Hebrew into Latin, from Greek into Latin, and then from Latin, which is what the Catholic Church used for everything, into English. Uh, and into other languages from there. Uh, so again, we have a copy of a copy. But it's not just a copy of a copy, it's also a copy of poorer manuscripts. In other words, the older the manuscripts are, the closer they get to the original, the more accurate they're going to be. So we have access now to stuff that goes back very, very, very far. That gives us very high degree of confidence in what's written. Um, there's been studies done, Josh McDowell, who some of you may be familiar with, did a study uh, the standard of biblical accuracy is so much higher than any other ancient text that we have. In other words, knowing what Homer said when he wrote the Iliad uh, or, or when he wrote the Odyssey, um, the standard for that is so much lower than what we've put on Scripture. Now, that's a good thing. The scriptural standard should be higher. Uh, but we have great manuscripts, manuscripts that agree, that say the same thing, manuscripts that go back thousands of years to allow us to know what did the Bible say. So that's one piece of it. But the question doesn't say, what is the Bible based on? The question is, how do we know today's accurate? Um, what we have is a whole lot of people working very, very, very hard to get to the truth of what the Bible originally said. And there's basically two routes 
and, and sort of a third route that you can go when you translate the Bible. You can do what's called a transliteration. A transliteration is word for word. Whatever it says in the Greek and it says in the Hebrew, we're going to say this in the English. You can also do a translation. A translation is taking what was said and trying to find a way to say the same thing in our language. In other words, if we were to translate a saying like, how do you like them apples? Into another culture that doesn't understand this question, you probably wouldn't translate it and say specifically, how do you like them apples? Because they're going to look at you like you're crazy, right? Because uh, that's, that's an idiom. So a translation takes the Jewish idioms and the Greek idioms and tries to find modern English-American equivalents. So it will communicate the same point in a way that people will understand it. And then there's people who take those two, two approaches and basically synthesize them and, and try to have a little bit transliteration, a little bit of a translation. So different Bibles come from different viewpoints. That's why we see so much discrepancy. The New American Standard Bible is basically considered the authority of transliteration. If you want the exact, this is what it said in the original languages, read the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it, is, it is considered extremely, extremely accurate. Um, we have Bibles like the NIV, uh, which take the translation approach. We're going to take what was written in this original language and try to communicate it in words that mean the same thing in our culture. The danger, of course, in that is if you make a false assumption or you miss something, uh, you're, you're going to be communicating something that the Bible didn't originally communicate. Uh, so I prefer the NIV. The NIV is my favorite Bible. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think any of our American English Bibles are perfect. I think they are all translated by humans, and there's some degree of human flaw in each of them. But I would say this. Number one, I think the flaw is very minor. If you begin to compare different translations, there's a very, very, very little discrepancy when it comes to meaning. They might word things a little differently. They might choose slightly different words. But when you get into the meaning, it's almost the same across translations. That gives me a lot of confidence. Secondly, I'd say this. I have enough faith that a God who could inspire people to write down the Bible, a God who would send his son to die in my place, can make sure that the Bible that gets in my hands has enough truth in it that I'm going to get close to the point. Um, I, I think there's maybe some little thing that we may miss or some little part of it that may be slightly off because of the, the foul, fallen nature of biblical translation. I think for the most part, we're going to get 99.999999% uh, and, and I think that God has enough grace to cover the point zero 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 one that we might be off. So that's why I have confidence in our translations. That's why I, I trust the word of God. Um, but Obviously, the greatest thing is, is to learn Greek and learn Hebrew and be able to study it in those. And when you do that, hit me up and tell me what it says. Uh, question three. So we go from big C church to little C city church. Do you have bylaws or a business model that the church uses? Uh, answer to that very simply is yes. We do have uh, bylaws. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Uh, so basically in America, if you're going to be a church, you've got to have bylaws. This is the law. This is the way that it's written. If you're going to charter a church, you're going to have a church, this is what has to be done. So 
I don't know that we have bylaws because I can point to Scripture and say, this is what the Bible says, why we need to have bylaws. Uh, but I know that we're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities, and this is what the United States says. Uh, and this is not something outside of Scripture. It doesn't say for us not to. Uh, so we do. We have bylaws. Our bylaws are a 42-page document, which is why you don't have a printout that I'm handing you today. Uh, but I will say this. I will give you my email address. My email is troysowden at gmail.com. If you want a copy of our bylaws, I will gladly send it to you. Uh, but if you ask for it, read it. Uh, like, you know, take, take the time to actually dig into it. Uh, we are, don't think that these bylaws are perfect. Uh, I'm sure there's some things that could be touched up and brushed up. I think they're pretty, pretty awesome. I think they're really well done. I'm grateful for them. I think they govern our church well. Uh, so you are, we, we don't have, you don't have to be a member to see them. You don't have to be like applying for membership. Open door policy, anybody can see our bylaws. Uh, there's just a lot to print out. So uh, email me and I will send it to you ASAP if you would like to look over those. Uh, question four. I noticed online when looking up City Church, there are several with logos that look like the one at City Church of Olive Branch. Is City Church a brand or a denomination? Really interesting question. Um, there are a lot of other churches nationwide that go by City Church. Uh, some of them go by City Church like us, where it's City Church one word, two capital C's. Some go City Space Church. Uh, there's at least one that I know of that I'm a big fan of that goes by the City Church. Uh, so, so there's a number of churches out there that kind of have this similar name. Um, are we all connected? Is it like Hillsong or, or something else where you, one, one equals the other? The reality is no. Um, it's coincidental and incidental uh, that different people selected the same name. Every city church that I've had any time to look at, I've really liked. Uh, I feel like smart people choose that name. Uh, but, but I'm sure there's probably one out there that was doing some stuff that we'd be like, yeah, we probably won't roll that way. Um, but we are not affiliated or connected on any sort of a level. Uh, there is one city church in Auburn, Alabama that did reach out to us. They were going through a building project, and we're going to do a big rebrand with their logo. And they were like, look, we've researched this across the country. You guys have the best city church logo anywhere. Is there any way that we can license your logo from you? Uh, and so we took that, and we prayed it over, and we said, you know what? We're not going to license to you. We're going to give it to you. Uh, so we sewed our logo into the city church in Auburn, Alabama. So if you look at their website, you will see our logo. I think they use a different color scheme with it, but it's the same exact lettering. Um, so they are authorized. If anybody else is using our logo, they're not authorized. Uh, they have not asked for it. We paid for that logo to get generated back in 2009 when we were moving to Olive Branch and rebranding from the church was originally founded as Church on the Horizon. Uh, a girl in Texas named Becky Segrist designed our church logo. She also designed Kid City logo, the 662 logo, uh, a number of other things for us. She is incredible. If you ever need a designer, she's the one to use. Uh, we highly recommend her. She's phenomenal. But uh, So that is our logo. We have been able to share it with some. If other people are using it, uh, they'll answer to God for that at some point, I'm sure. Uh, so we are not affiliated. We are not in some sort of city church denomination. So what are our affiliations? I think then that's the next question that would come up, so I'm going to answer that one for you. Uh, we are affiliated with the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God is a fellowship of churches. It's global um, that embrace Pentecostal doctrine. Pentecostal doctrine is basically the belief uh, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost are still for today, that they didn't cease, that they continue on. Pentecostals tend oftentimes to really emphasize uh, the gift of speaking in tongues. 
Uh, so we believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. We believe in the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we have shared doctrine with uh, the assemblies of God. What I usually tell people when they ask, okay, what's the relationship with the assemblies like? Is that, hey, we have assemblies of God doctrine, uh, but we have methods that are usually a lot different than a stereotypical assemblies of God church. We come at it from a different approach, with different emphasis, um, kind of kind of at it from a different direction. So we believe the same things, but we maybe order the priorities a little different, if that makes sense, um, and the way that we do our services and conduct our ministry. So we tell people we are an interdenominational church. Uh, if you were to go across this auditorium right now, we've got people in here who grew up Catholic, people in here who grew up Methodist, people in here who grew up Baptist, people in here who grew up Charismatic, people in here who grew up Assemblies of God, um, and just about anything else in between. Uh, so we've got what, what I think is a really cool melting pot of, of different perspectives, of different viewpoints, uh, of different even Christian values. Uh, to me, I think the, the greater church has great value because I think each little movement, each little denomination, each little affiliation kind of has maybe one thing that God's really blessed them in and really shown them and revealed to them that they're maybe better than most of the others in. And so to me, I want to hear from everybody. I, I want to hear your perspective. I want to hear what, because what, I don't think any of us have it all figured out. I don't think there's any, man, this doctrine, this is it, 100%. I think all of us are going to get to heaven and be like, whoops, we missed it a little bit there. And me, it'll probably be stuff that I thought really hard about. No, this is the way. It's like, okay, I was wrong. Sorry. Uh, so so we, we, we embrace an interdenominational identity, uh, though we do have an Assemblies of God affiliation. So our Assemblies affiliation kind of fleshes out primarily in two ways. And usually when you tell somebody you're an Assemblies of God church, there's a whole connection of ministries uh, that are associated with that. Here's how you do children's ministry. Here's uh, missionettes and Royal Rangers and Boys and Girls Missionary Club. They call it BGMC and all kinds of other stuff. And I can say that because my, my grandfather was an Assemblies of God pastor. Uh, so I grew up uh, very exposed and very familiar to the Assemblies of God. Uh, for City Church, when our church was founded, Jason Delgado, who founded our church, he was very upfront, hey, we want to do something different. Not that those things are bad. It's not that they um, are wrong in any sort of a way. We've got a vision for something totally different. And we're not, probably not going to do these things. We're probably not going to go to these conferences. We're probably not going to promote these, these specific things. Um, and so as the church has been passed down through our, our next two pastors, through Pastor Ricky and then to me, uh, we've tried to stay true to that original vision. Uh, so, so we flow with the AG primarily in two ways. Number one is we support a lot of Assemblies of God missionaries. From our perspective, uh, Assemblies of God has an incredible world missions program. Uh, it does an amazing job at advancing the gospel around the world. Almost all of our missionaries here at City Church are Assemblies of God missionaries. There are at least two that are not, so we're not exclusive. We believe that God uses other missionaries as well, uh, but, but we do believe strongly in the AG World Missions program. The other primary function that we flow in with the AG is our credentials, uh, as your pastor, my credential is through the Assemblies of God. They are my accountability. Um, I actually have to, according to their standards, I pay a portion of my tithe to the Assemblies of God. Uh, so, so a portion of that goes out every month um, to, to help advance what they are doing, to help finance what they are doing. Now, the AG has been really, really, really good to us. They gave us a church planting loan when we first started up, uh, which we are still repaying, and at current pace, we're going to have paid off by the end of next year in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, 
which is so cool because we've been in debt for way too long. We have a standard now, by the way, we don't take on any more debt. We don't have credit cards. Uh, we, we, we are not taking on any debt. If we can't pay for it, we ain't getting it. Um, so, uh, so we're going to be paid off, uh, if not by the end of next year, very early in 2020. Um, and very grateful for God's blessing to get us to that point. So we're, we're paying off that original loan. Also, the Assemblies of God is the reason why we got this building. There was a pre-existing Assemblies Church in this building, and when they were closing down, the Assemblies called us and said, hey, would you be interested? Uh, and it was called Branch Assembly. Would you guys be interested in moving into the Branch Assembly building? And so that was a massive blessing for us. A uh, huge, huge blessing. So the AG's been really good to us. We believe in the AG. We're grateful for the AG. Um, it's not the flag that we fly. Uh, it, it's not necessarily even a, a lot of the relationships and networking that we do. Uh, we have two churches here in town that we're really connected with, Spirit Church and Church of the Harvest, and neither of them are part of a denomination. They're non-denominational churches, um, but, but we love to connect with them and worship with them and gather with them, and so that's our relationships locally, uh, primarily. So that's us. We also have an affiliation with an organization I'll mention real fast called the Association of Related Churches. Uh, it's known primarily as ARC. ARC is a church planting organization. From our perspective, they do the best church plants in the world. Uh, and so what we do is we give uh, $300 every month to finance ARC and for them to plant another church. Uh, they plant really healthy churches that, that really bless communities and glorify Jesus. And so we believe the best way that we can bless cities is by planting life-giving churches, is by financing churches, is, is by helping, man, the gospel get out. And so we do that every month. That's our other affiliation, um, and we network a lot with, within that. So last question for today, and this is the one that we'll spend the most time on. As you can see, we're going to be taking communion in a few moments. John chapter 6, verses 48 through 59, uh, why do Catholics have transubstantiationism, uh, Lutherans, something else, it's called Eucharist, by the way, and Protestants as a remembrance, but all consider it a sacred sacrament. How is this different than cannibalism? So we're about to take communion today. Uh, how do I know that I'm not a cannibal? Uh, well, let me, let me dig into this question a little bit so it makes sense for some who might be like, what? Why would you even think that? Um, so the Catholic belief in communion is what they call transubstantiationism. They believe that as the, the elements of communion are prayed over, um, that there is, and they say that we can't tell you how, it just happens, but there's a supernatural aspect that takes over where this will literally and physically become the body of Christ, and this will literally and physically become the blood of Christ, and that is what you are consuming. Um, I think that is probably based on the, taking the words of Jesus literal. That when Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you, and this is my blood, which is for you, I think they look at that and say, hey, okay, it's his body and it's his blood. We take Jesus at his word. Now, Jesus is capable of using literary devices uh, and using metaphor and using simile, and that's what we believe is that he's using uh, a metaphor there, a symbol. Um, but so that's where I think the question comes from. Lutherans believe in what they call the Eucharist. They call it the sacramental union. So they embrace both beliefs, whereas we would say, hey, you're going to take a piece of bread and drink some juice, uh, and the Catholics would say, hey, you're going to eat a piece of Jesus' body and drink Jesus' blood, the Lutherans would say, you're going to do both. This is both Jesus' blood, and they would say the wine, um, and this is both Jesus' body and physically bread. There's a sacramental union that goes into it. Um, 
I don't know that it really matters that much what you believe on this. Um, I think we can get into a lot of arguments and a lot of throwing rocks at each other. Um, I think Catholics are off on this. I think the Lutherans are off on this. I know there's stuff that I'm going to find out I'm off on. So, so I'm not here to say, man, they're, they're terrible or they're not celebrating Jesus. Um, I think we can very easily read this passage and recognize that Jesus was teaching a s- symbolic point. He's trying to teach us some meaning behind this and not saying you are physically going to eat me. So for us, you're not cannibals. Uh, now, you want to ask that question in a Catholic church or a Lutheran church? I don't know what their answer would be. I'm sure they have an answer for it. Um, but, but I'm not familiar with what that answer would be. Um, so let's look at what happened. Let, let's look at the actual story. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record a very similar account of the Last Supper, um, and specifically this, this sacrament of communion. So we're going to look at that first, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians and shed a little more light. It says, and he, he being Jesus, took bread, in Luke chapter twenty-two nineteen. he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with me on the table. Uh, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it would be, might be, who would do this. So so in instituting communion, he also outs Judas. This is the one who's going to betray me. This is the one. And and then we see Judas go off and, and betray Jesus and uh, get the 30 pieces of silver. So the Gospels actually have a very brief account of communion. Uh, the Apostle Paul gives us a more detailed account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what's ironic in 1 Corinthians 11 is he's writing this not really to teach us about the first communion. He's writing to tell the Corinthians how they're doing it wrong. Uh, he, he's got issues with the way that they're partaking in communion, and he wants to address those. And in his correction to the church at Corinth, uh, he gives us more information about what originally happened. So in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read the entire passage on communion. We don't always do this. Uh, it's about 17 verses long, so hang with me. Um, and then we're going to take three points out of this, and then we're going to partake together. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, Paul says, for your meetings do more harm than good. God forbid that would ever be said about us. Man, don't, don't we all know of some churches that have probably done more harm than good? Man, some of us have probably grown up in some churches that did more harm than good. Man, God forbid that description ever be used against us. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. That's called sarcasm. Uh, Isn't it awesome? There's sarcasm in the Bible. That's encouragement to me. Uh, He's, he's mocking their point that somehow they, they've created these differences because one of them wants to show, hey, I'm a better Christian than you. I'm closer to God than you. And he's saying, this is so ridiculous. Verse 20, he says, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So Bible scholars digging into this believe this is what was going on, that, that the Corinthians were doing some sort of a bring your own communion. Uh, that they would, they would say, hey, you know, we're going to partake. Uh, so, so bring your own. And, and so those who had abundance, 
brought in abundance, and those who had nothing or very little weren't able to bring anything, and those who had a lot weren't sharing with those who didn't have anything. Uh, they, they were gorging on themselves. They were feasting. They were turning this into a meal. Uh, I'm going to have as much as I want. It says even some of them were getting drunk on the wine, which, yeah, that's probably why we have grape juice. Uh, but but that, that this was going on, he says, man, you're mocking the church of God. You're mocking communion. Uh, so then he says, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whenever, whoever eats this, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So the question is, how do I take it in an unworthy manner? Well, I think in context, we can answer that fairly easy. How is it to take it in an unworthy manner? If you come down here to feast, uh, if you run off with the big piece of bread, you're like, man, I love bread, I'm going to throw down on this, and you find the jug of grape juice and you decide to guzzle that. Um, in other words, it's missing the point. This isn't about eating. It's not about drinking. It's not about nourishment for my physical body. It's using a physical symbol to remind me of what Jesus has done for me in his physical body and in the spiritual realm. Uh, and so it's not about eating. If we do that, if we, what we do is we lower it. We degrade it to the place where we make it about the food, where we make it about the element that's being consumed. Uh, so he says, if you do this in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further instructions. A couple quick things out of this. Um, Paul says we should all examine ourselves before we take communion. Now, in context, he's speaking specifically about this degradation of communion by consumption, by greed, by gluttony. Uh, by exclusion of others. Uh, I think we can apply that principle to greater things, because let's be real, nobody came here today thinking, man, I'm going to eat 75 pieces of communion bread, right? Like, nobody's like, I'm getting 13 communion shots, and I'm going to see, right? Like, no, nobody's at that place. Um, so, so the Bible always has value for us, even when it speaks to something that we don't struggle with, right? That's why we talk about biblical principle. That even though we don't deal with the same surface issue, sometimes we deal with the same heart issues, right? And so, so the reality is, as we get ready to partake this, we all need to examine ourselves. We need to look into our heart. How do we approach Jesus? Do we approach Jesus as king? We're going to sing a song in a few minutes called Amazing Love. And in the bridge, it's going to make this declaration, you are my king. You are my king. Jesus, you are my king. I don't want you to sing that if it's not real. I don't want you to partake in communion if it's not real. Because communion is the act of recognizing he's the sacrifice 
He's the king. He's the only one who can do this for me. He's the only one who can die in my place. He's the only one who can make me right with him. He's the only one. And if I approach it in anything else, if I approach it with any other attitude, if I approach it as just another day of taking communion, as just another empty ritual, as I approach it as, man, I hope the bread's not stale today and I hope it tastes good. If I approach it in any other direction, then I'm partaking in the sacrifice of Jesus by which he delivered me and he saved me and he made me right with God. If I see it as anything else than that, I'm missing it. So he says, examine yourself. Check your heart before you do this. Don't you dare do it to just take communion one more time. Don't you dare do it because, hey, this is what everybody else in the room was doing, and I didn't want to look weird. Don't you dare do it for anything other than a recognition that he's my king, and he's my sacrifice, and he died for me, and I need the blood of Jesus to wash me clean. I need the body of Christ to make me whole. I need the nutrition, the nourishment that only comes through Jesus, not through a cup, not through a piece of bread, but through him. So we got to examine ourselves, not just today, but every day. By the way, you don't have to just take communion at church. I know a lot of people who partake of communion in their home by themselves with their families. I think it'd be really cool some of us initiated that maybe on Thanksgiving. Hey, what, what if we took communion this year as a family? Maybe some of us don't have the family that can do that, and I'm not saying you're like less of a Christian if you don't. I just, I think this is something that, that we can do more often. And in different settings, we don't just have to wait till we gather together in a church service to partake. So I want to give you super, super quick three points, and then we're going to come down and get the elements and partake. Communion helps us do three things. Number one, it helps us remember Jesus' sacrifice. Question said, why do, why do we do it as a remembrance? Because Jesus said, do this as remembrance of me. This isn't some, some doctrine that we split off from another church. This is the words of Jesus in all, three, all four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Why do we partake of this? Because Jesus realized we'd forget. He realized life would get busy. And we get distracted. And despite the fact that God himself left heaven and came to earth and died on a tree for me, that I'd forget. So he says, I'm going to give you this to help you remember. I want you to do this. And when you do it, I want you to remember me. So what do we do? We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And otherwise, we remember that our salvation was not purchased cheaply. There was a price to pay for my sin. And praise God, Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. See, sin had left that crimson stain. But because of the blood of Jesus, it's been washed as white as snow. See, we take this to remember Jesus' sacrifice. But it doesn't stop there. Number two, we partake in Jesus' victory. Jesus says that when you take the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In other words, you don't just proclaim his death, but you proclaim he's alive and he's coming back. So we remember his sacrifice, but we partake in his victory. He's coming back. He ain't just coming back. He's coming back for us, for his people. And number three, and I think this is so powerful, we take in communion to unite as Jesus' body. Why did Paul address these issues with the Corinthian church? 
because the thing that Jesus had given them to unite them together was being used to divide them. He says, you are the body of Christ, church. Not alone, but together. Corporately, we're the body of Christ. And so he's got this thing where we actually partake symbolically in taking his body. And we're using it to divide. We're using it to point fingers and say, this church doesn't do it right, and this church misses this, and, and this isn't good enough, and I don't like the way they did it at this church because they had a wafer. I didn't like the way they did it there. Man, we, we miss it. It ain't about the church. It ain't about the element. It's about Jesus, number one, but number two, it's about us. It's about unity. It's about coming together. See, the amazing thing about this is though it's been done differently and with different words and under different descriptions, this has been done by hundreds of millions of Christians across the globe throughout the centuries. When we partake in communion, we're celebrating that it ain't just us. It ain't just City Church. We're part of a kingdom. We're part of something bigger. We're part of something that God instituted and his kingdom's coming down. So we do it together. Paul says, stop this nonsense of some of you partaking and some of you not. City Church, we practice what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member here to take communion with us. You don't have to come up to me and tell me the four reasons why you know you've received salvation to take communion with us. Some churches do things like that. Here's what you have to do. Number one, you have to be a professing Christian. In other words, you believe that you've encountered a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's between you and God. Nobody else is gonna judge you. Nobody else is gonna know. Between you and God. So that's number one. Number two, you have to take it with some dignity. We don't take this casually. We don't take it cheaply. Sometimes people ask us, why don't we take communion more often? And the reason why we only take communion a few times a year is for us, we don't ever want it to be rushed. We don't ever want it to just be another thing that we have to do on the schedule. We want to make sure when we take communion that we take time to examine ourselves, that we take time to teach on this, that we take time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that we take time to celebrate the unity of believers. It can't just be an empty ritual. So if you're willing to, to partake in that today, to remember his sacrifice, to partake in his victory, to unify with the body, then, man, we invite you. 